Some situations are dangerous and therefore prone to misunderstandings. This was certainly true of the frontier preachers in early America. These ministers encountered people who basically had no knowledge of the Bible and no knowledge of the gospel. In his book, Bible in Pocket, Gun in Hand, the story of frontier religion, Ross Fairs gives a few excerpts highlighting the misunderstandings of those who lived in the frontier. He says this, a circuit writer examined a man who was signing singing a profane song, and he asked him, do you know Jesus Christ? The man did not. He said, he must not live in these parts. Another circuit writer asked a boy, who killed Abel? The boy answered, I didn't know he was dead. We just moved here last week. (laughs) A preacher asked a woman if she had any religious convictions. She answered bluntly, nah, nor my old man neither. He were tried for hog stealing once, but he weren't convicted. The frontier had a lack of clergymen, a lack of literacy, and a lack of money. And people usually just got buried in a hole without any formal rites or tombstones. On one of the graves for a gambler, it said, Played five aces, now playing a harp. A Presbyterian missionary arrived at a lonely cabin in a clearing and hoping to find some fellow member of his denomination, he asked the woman of the cabin, are there any Presbyterians in this country? The woman, obviously assuming that the man riding the dim trails through the woods must be a hunter of wild animals like her husband, and she replied, Wall, I just couldn't say for sure about that. These woods is full of mist, every varmint, every kind of varmint, but I ain't paid much attention to them. You might take a look around there on the back side of the cabin where my husband keeps his varmint hides and see if he's got any Presbyterian hides nailed up. (laughs) If there's any Presbyterians in this country, he's bound to have caught one by now. But not only was the American frontier a place of great misunderstanding concerning the things of religion and the gospel, it was a very dangerous place. Violence, vice, alcoholism, and lawlessness reigned in the frontier. And it was into this dangerous world that many preachers went carrying their Bibles and their guns. One preacher, Peter Cartwright, said this, The Red River area was called Rogue's Harbor. Here, many refugees from all parts of the Union fled to escape justice or punishment. It was a desperate state of society. Murderers, horse thieves, highway robbers, and counterfeiters fled there until they combined and actually formed a majority. These are the people that the frontier preachers preached to. Ross Fares says this, describing these frontier preachers who faced the dangerous frontier. He said, many preachers, by expert markmanship, saved themselves to preach another day. As a basic precaution, they often traveled armed to the teeth and made it a practice to lay a pistol and the Bible side by side on the lectern. Bible in pocket, gun in hand. Bible and gun on the pulpit, 
as they preach. That's how these frontier preachers faced the dangerous frontier, which was full of horse thieves and robbers and murderers and drunkards and plain old ignorant people who had no working knowledge of the gospel. And it was a setting of danger and misunderstanding that Nehemiah encountered as he continued his work rebuilding the city walls that surrounded Jerusalem. And we too find ourselves in the same situation. The people of God have always faced dangerous settings and dealt with people who misunderstood what we were about. So what do we do as we face opposition and threat? As the world misunderstands what we are about, as the world misunderstands our calling as the people of God, as the world misunderstands our convictions and our beliefs, what do we do? Here's what we do. Our big idea today is very instructive for us when we face these situations. We don't survive by slugging people in the face but by seeking God's face. We don't survive by physically fighting with people. We survive as the people of God by seeking God's face. Our focus cannot be whatever crisis the church is facing today. Our focus must always be Jesus. Our focus must always be on Jesus because Jesus is better than everything. But how easy is it for us to lose sight of this? It's so easy to become preoccupied with the opposition, to become preoccupied with the latest battle, to be preoccupied with what the world says about us, to be preoccupied with how the world misunderstands us. For instance, we might obsess over one issue, abortion, definition of marriage, Sex trafficking, political issues, domestic violence, helping the poor. Do we need to be concerned about these things? Oh yes, absolutely. Do we need to stand up for truth? Yes, absolutely. We are pro-life. We need to stand up for the unborn. We are for a biblical definition of marriage, which is one man and one woman in covenant together before God. We are against domestic violence, which surprisingly happens in the church. We are against human trafficking, but we cannot thrive and we cannot survive as the people of God by focusing on those issues. Our focus must always be on seeking the Lord and letting Jesus catapult us out to seek the good of our city and the good of our neighborhoods and the good of our workplaces. Our focus must be on worshiping Jesus. That's how we get strength. That's how we are sustained. That's how we are catapulted out into mission. It's so strange, but how many churches, how many disciples actually lose sight of this? We lose sight of the fact that Jesus is better than anything that we do for him. 
How easy is it for us to work up our adrenaline for some ethical situation, to work up our adrenaline for some political situation, to work up our adrenaline for some cultural situation. It's easy for us to get ourselves pumped up for those things. It's easy to get caught up in those things. The many crises that we face should move us to action, yes, but they will never sustain us. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can catapult us out into mission. The church must always resist the temptation to look at the latest cause as the source of our life. Are we called to defend Yes, absolutely. We are called to be the city of God. We are called to stand up for truth, but we cannot become consumed with our enemies or consumed with the opposition. Instead, we must be enthralled with Jesus Christ. We must be consumed with Christ and not the latest cause. We must be gripped by God and not by what our government is doing. We must be mesmerized by the Messiah and not by the media. We must be riveted by our Redeemer and not by the rulings of some court. Jesus is better than everything. Jesus is better than every cause. But oh, how easy it is to lose sight of this. How easy it is to focus on who is out there and not who is here in our midst. How easy it is to focus on who is against us and not on who dwells among us. And that's why God gave us Nehemiah chapter 6. So that we would remember that life and sustenance is found not in dealing with the crises of our day, but by worshiping Jesus, because Jesus is better. So we don't survive by slugging people in the face, but by seeking God's face. We don't survive by being involved in all of these things. We survive, we get strength when we keep our eyes on Jesus. Now let Nehemiah show you this. Nehemiah chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this manner. And I answered them in the same manner. So the three stooges, as we've called them, show back up. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And all of Israel's here, That all of, all of the... Uh, nations, Israel's enemies, hear that the city walls are almost finished. Now, I don't know if Nehemiah was on Good Morning Jerusalem, Larry King Live, but somehow word has spread. They are almost done. The city walls have been rebuilt. The only task left is to put the doors in place in the gates 
once Nehemiah goes to Home Depot to get them. That's all that's left. But while Nehemiah is on his way to Home Depot to purchase the gates to put them in, Sanballat and Geshem sent a messenger to him asking Nehemiah to meet them at Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. Ono was about 25, 27 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It would have been neutral territory. So Sanballat, the bully, wants Nehemiah to meet him there. This has been the typical bullying protocol for thousands of years. Meet me on the playground, by the slide, after school, and you're dead meat. See, nothing's changed. It's all that the bullies have. It's the same protocol. Meet me at this place at this time, and you're dead meat. That's all they have, and that's what Sanballat is doing here. But Nehemiah is not dumb. Sanballat and Geshem say, Come and let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. Meet us by the slide on the playground after school. And Nehemiah replies with, oh no, I ain't driving to Ono. I ain't driving 27 miles with gas prices like these all the way up to Hakafarim just to get my head hacked off with a hatchet. Nehemiah knew that they intended to do him harm. That's what verse 2 says. Nehemiah is not a dummy. He knew that he'd end up in the Jordan River wearing a pair of cement shoes if he went to Ono. So Nehemiah sends word back to Sanballat in verse 3. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? This is where Nehemiah is instructive for us as we resist getting distracted by the world. Where was Nehemiah's focus? He was focused on God's glory on Jerusalem being the city of God. He was focused on working so that God's glory would extend to the nations. He was focused on worship, not going to war with Sanballat. He was busy doing this great work because he was captivated by the gospel. It would be absurd for Nehemiah to leave the construction site to go visit Sanballat and Geshem. Why? Because Nehemiah was involved in the Lord's work He's consumed with the gospel. It would be ridiculous to abandon the work that he was doing in order to go to war. It would be ridiculous to go to Ono in order to get punched in the face. Nehemiah is on mission. We need to rebuild the city walls so that we can be the city of God and shine forth the light of the gospel, the fame of Yahweh's name, Because we want the white hot worship of Yahweh to spread to every nation. This is what I'm about. Worship and not war out there. See, Nehemiah had two options. Stay put and put the doors in the gates. Or go out to Ono and get punched in the nose. Stay put, put the doors into place. Go to Ono, get punched in the nose. Nehemiah had the right perspective. And it's instructive for us. We have to be able to see that though we must be involved in standing up for the truth, we must be careful that we don't get distracted from Jesus in the process. Life and sustenance is not found in fighting the war, but found in worshiping Jesus. We are called to be the city of God. As a church, we're called to stand up for truth, to have a quote-unquote gun in hand, ready to defend truth. But we cannot become consumed with our enemies or consumed with our opposition. Instead, we must be enthralled 
with Jesus Christ. We must be consumed by Christ, consumed with Christ and not the latest cause. We must be gripped by God and not by what our government is doing. We must be mesmerized by the Messiah and not by the media. We must be riveted by our Redeemer and not by the rulings of some court. But oh, how easy it is to lose sight of this. How easy it is to focus on who is out there and not on who is here in our midst. It's so easy to focus on who is against us and not on who dwells among us, the living God. We don't survive by slugging people in the face, but by seeking God's face. Look at verse 4. And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Well, Sanballat wasn't the sharpest tool in the toolbox. He does this little ping pong letter thing with Nehemiah back and forth four times. I mean, Sanballat really was a bully. He was used to telling people, meet me by the slide, meet me by the swing set after school, and they would do it. But Nehemiah refused, and Sanballat didn't know what to do, so he just keeps sending the letter back and forth. It's like, he's not doing what I'm supposed to do. I guess I'll just keep telling him. Well, finally, the fifth time, he sends this open letter, which we could paraphrase this way, and I think you have to read it with an accent. Dear Nehemiah, quit messing with me. If you don't wise up and do what we say, we're going to spread some rumors that you're planning to revolt against King Artaxerxes and that you think you're the king and you even have prophets who are supporting you. If you don't do what we say, then we're going to let the king know. Forget about it. (laughs) I think that's how Sanballat talked. Well, Nehemiah replies to this mafia message in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Then I sent to Sanballat saying to him, No such things as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. And that's what the world is always doing. When they put pressure on us, they want us to give up so that our hands will drop. But Nehemiah prays, but now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah calls Sanballat's bluff. He knows that Sanballat is making these things up. He knows that the the goal of their enemies is to scare the people of God so that they will quit building the city walls and quit being the city of God so that the worship of Yahweh would not spread to the nations. And then Nehemiah does what he does every time he gets in a pickle. In this book, you read it over and over again. He prays. He seeks the Lord's face. Nehemiah doesn't get caught up in punching Sanballat in the face. He doesn't get caught up in kicking sand in Sanballat's face. He seeks Yahweh's face. 
And he asks the Lord to give him strength. He knows that in the face of opposition, he needs God more than anything else. He doesn't have the strength in himself. It has to come from an outside source, and that's why he prays, but now, oh God, strengthen my hands. And God answers his prayer. Look at verse 10. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. And here comes another prayer of Nehemiah's. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat. Oh my God, according to these things that they did and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So Nehemiah goes and has lunch at Shemaiah's house and Shemaiah comes up with this plan. Hey, let's go meet up in the temple. They're coming to kill you tonight. We'll lock the doors and you'll be safe. Now, on the surface, it seems like a decent plan. I mean, if they're going to kill you that night and you know about it, it seems like a good idea not to be at your home watching TV if you know people are coming to kill you. But it was a bad idea to hide in the temple. And here's why it was a bad idea. It was sin. That's why Nehemiah says, no way, I'm not doing that. Nehemiah knew what Shemaiah was doing. Was trying to get him to sin, to go against God's law, to go against God's word. Now, why was it a sin to go into the temple? Why would Nehemiah die for going into the temple? Because the innermost parts of the temple were off limits to anyone who was not a priest. Nehemiah was allowed to go into the temple courtyards, like the average worship, uh, worshiper in Israel, but Nehemiah was forbidden by scripture from going into the innermost parts of the temple. This privilege was reserved only for priests and was off limits to everyone else. Numbers 18, 7 tells us this and you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and all that is within the veil and you shall serve i give your priesthood as a gift and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death you may remember the story in second chronicles chapter 26 where king uzziah entered the innermost part of the temple and tried to burn incense, and then he broke out in leprosy and had leprosy until his death. Nehemiah knew that hiding in the temple was off limits. Nehemiah had a Bible in his pocket. He knew God's word. The Bible in Nehemiah's pocket said, if anyone came near the Lord, if they weren't a priest, then they would die. And Nehemiah knew this because he read the Bible in his pocket. And he knew that even though there was a bounty out on his head, it would be better to face sinful man than to face a holy God. So how does Nehemiah respond to Shemaiah's plan? He basically says in verse 11, I'm not chicken. I'm not hiding from these people. I've got more guts than that, Shemaiah. I'm not afraid of Sanballat. I fear Yahweh more than anything. 
I can't go into the temple and survive. I'll actually be put to death. I'll die if I go inside the temple because that's what God's word says and that's where Yahweh dwells. Nehemiah knew that the temple was off limits and he perceived what Shemaiah was trying to do. Nehemiah realized that Shemaiah was being paid off by Sanballat and Tobiah to prophesy falsely so that he would get scared and go into the temple and sin and therefore be put to death. But verse 14 says it wasn't just Shemaiah who was lying. also says there was a prophetess and other prophets who were also trying to scare Nehemiah. But Nehemiah knew we do not survive by slugging people in the face, but by seeking God's face. And so Nehemiah sought the face of the Lord again. He offered another prayer in verse 14, asking God to remember what these enemies are doing. In verse 14, he prays again, Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and all the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Essentially, Nehemiah is saying this, These people are trying to get me to sin, Lord. They're trying to get me to give up on my work and calling. God, please stop them. Do something about them because ultimately, Lord, they are your enemies. And the Lord answered Nehemiah's prayer because the city walls were completed with the help that the Lord provided. Look at verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara. And his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Here's what's interesting now is that the nations are afraid. They spent the entire chapter, you can see it in English how often it gets repeated over and over. They spent the entire chapter trying to scare Nehemiah and now they are the ones that are scared because they realize to to be able to rebuild these city walls in 52 days amidst strong opposition was all due to the intervention of God. But just because they are down... Israel's enemies are not out for the count. Tobiah kept writing letters to some of the leaders of Judah trying to convince them that what Nehemiah was doing was wrong. And some Israelites probably still had some sort of business dealings with Tobiah and some were related to him. So they began to take his side and at least point out all of his good works as verse 19 says. They're probably telling people, Tobiah's not that, he's not that bad of a guy. Come on, give him a break. So people would report to Nehemiah and then to Tobiah and on and on it went back and forth. A steady stream of gossip about how Tobiah was such a nice young man came and went. In fact, in Hebrew, these are participles suggesting that this was a continuous thing here. It was happening nonstop. Tobiah just kept sending letters to Nehemiah trying to make him afraid. And it's just another reminder that opposition to the gospel will never end. And because opposition to the gospel will never end, that means that our tendency to get distracted from our mission 
will always be a reality. So let me tell you again what I told you earlier. Our focus cannot be whatever crisis the church is facing today. Our focus must always be Jesus. Our focus must always be on Jesus because Jesus is better than everything. But it's so easy to lose sight of this. It's so easy to be preoccupied with the opposition, to be preoccupied with the latest battle, to be preoccupied with what the world says about us and about what we believe, to be preoccupied with how the world misunderstands us. So we might obsess over one issue, abortion, definition of marriage, sex trafficking, political issues, domestic violence, helping the poor. Do we need to be concerned about these things? Absolutely. That is our calling as the people of God. Do we need to stand up for truth? Absolutely. We are pro-life and we must stand up for the unborn. We believe in a biblical definition of marriage. As God's word says, one man, one woman, together in covenant before a holy God. We are against domestic violence. We are against human trafficking. But we cannot thrive and survive as the people of God by focusing on those things so much that we lose sight of Jesus. Our focus must always be on seeking the Lord like Nehemiah did, and letting Jesus catapult us to seek the good of our city, the good of our neighborhoods, and the good of our workplaces. Our focus must be on worshiping Jesus. That's how we get strength. That's how we are sustained. That's how we are catapulted out into mission. But it's so strange because how many churches and how many disciples actually lose sight of this? We lose sight of the fact that Jesus is better than anything that we do for him. How easy is it for us to work up our adrenaline for some ethical situation, to work up our adrenaline for some political situation, to work up our adrenaline for some cultural situation. And you know what I'm talking about because when you watch the news, your adrenaline flows and your blood boils and how easy it is to make that our passion. It's easy to get ourselves pumped up for those things. What's going on in our country? What's happening in our country? It's easy to get caught up in those things. But the many crises that we face, they should move us to action, yes, but they can never sustain us. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can catapult you into mission. Watching Fox News 24 hours a day is not going to catapult you into mission. It's going to make you angry. It's going to make your blood boil. And then whatever issue it is, that becomes your idol. That becomes your God. The church must always resist the temptation to look at the latest cause as our source for life. Are we called to defend? Yes, absolutely. We are called to be the city of God, called to stand up for truth, called to have a Bible in pocket and a gun in hand in the sense that we defend truth, but we cannot become consumed with our enemies, consumed 
with our opposition. Instead, we must be enthralled and spellbound by Jesus Christ. We must be consumed with Christ and not the latest cause. We must be gripped by God and not by what our government is doing. We must be mesmerized by the Messiah and not the media. We must be riveted by our Redeemer and not by the rulings of some human court. We should have a Bible in pocket and gun in hand. We should have a Bible in our pocket and know what God's mission is. We should let God's word guide our mission. We should have a Bible in our pocket because the Bible in our pocket would tell us the kingdoms of this world belong to Jesus. He's the king. He's on the throne. The kingdom of God is advancing in this world. I don't care what NBC says. The kingdom of God is advancing in this world. That's why we must keep a Bible in our pocket to remind ourselves that our king reigns over everyone. I don't care what's happening in the media, in the world today. Jesus is sitting on the throne and he's not stressed out. We have a Bible in our pocket, knowing our mission, knowing our king. And we should have a gun in our hand, meaning this. We should be busy defending truth, not literally shooting people. Defending truth, defending the unborn, helping the poor, preserving doctrine. But we do all of that, all of that, with our eyes on Jesus. It's by keeping our eyes on Jesus that we will then be catapulted to serve our city. It's by keeping our eyes on Jesus that we will be enabled by the Holy Spirit to effectively do what he has called us to do. If we don't keep our eyes on Jesus, we'll get caught up in doing his work, but we'll drift from his worship. We'll lose our awe of God and be spellbound Whatever thing it is that gets our blood boiling, we'll be busy doing his work and we'll neglect his worship. And I saw this in seminary over and over again. Guys go to seminary. They start learning the original biblical languages, Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, and they start learning theology and they start learning church history and they get swept away by academia. And they lose sight of Jesus, the one that the book is talking about. And I saw it over and over again with guys. They get caught up in Hebrew words, and they lose sight of the word. They start parsing Greek, and they lose sight of praising God. They get caught up in academics, and they lose their awe of God. Paul Tripp says this about the awe of God. And it's a lengthy quote, but we need to hear it. Awe of God must dominate my ministry, he says, because one of the central missional gifts of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to give people back their awe of God. A human being not living with functional awe of God is profoundly disadvantaged. He is off the rails trying to propel the train of his life in a meadow. And he may not even know it. When awe of God is absent, it is quickly replaced by awe of ourselves. If you are not living for God, the only other alternative is to live for yourself. 
So a church must turn people back to the one thing for which they were created, to live in a sturdy, joyful, faithful awe of God. This means every sermon should be prepared by a person whose study is marked by awe of God. The sermon must be delivered in awe and have as its purpose to motivate awe in those who hear. Children's ministry must have as its goal to ignite in young children a life-shaping awe of God. The youth ministry of the church must move beyond Bible entertainment and do all it can to help these teens see God's glory and name it as the thing for which they will live. Women's ministry must do more than give women a place to fellowship with one another and do crafts. Women need to be rescued from themselves and myriad self-interests that nip at their hearts. Awe of God provides that rescue. Men's ministries need to recognize the coldness in the heart of so many men to the things of God and confront and stimulate men with their identity as those created to live and lead out of a humble zeal for God's glory rather than their own. Missions and evangelism too must be awe-driven. Remember, Paul argues that this is the reason for the cross. He says that Jesus came so that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who loved them and gave himself for them. Only powerful grace can keep this awe alive. Only then can we be used to ignite that awe in others. So let me ask you today, Grace, do you live with a sturdy, joyful, faithful awe of God? Who has your attention today? Who stirs your passions and your affections more? Is it Christ or some cause? Who has your attention today? Who stirs your passions and your affections more? God or the government? Who has your attention today? Who stirs your passions and affections more? The Messiah or the media? Who has your attention today? Who stirs your passions and affections more? Your redeemer or the rulings of some court? Jesus is better than everything. Jesus is better than every cause. But oh, how easy it is for us to lose sight of this. How easy it is for us to focus on who is out there in the world coming at us and not focus on who is here in our midst. How easy it is to focus on who's against us and not who dwells among us who is here among us grace it's jesus who is the god who dwells among us i will be your god you will be my people which is the theme of the whole bible i will be your god you will be my people i am your father you are my sons and daughters who dwells among us it's jesus christ the word made flesh and it was jesus who came and lived the life that we could never live because we're sinners and he came and he died the death that we all deserve because we're sinners and it was jesus who fully obeyed the law of god and then took the curse of the law upon himself for rule breakers like us, so that rule breakers like us, when covered with his righteousness and his perfect life, then we can enter into the presence of a holy God. 
You remember how Nehemiah did not want to enter into the presence of the Lord? He knew that he would be killed. And yet Jesus lived and died for us so that we could enter God's presence. I think it's sin if we don't enter God's presence as the people of God who are redeemed. The writer of Hebrews describes it this way, Hebrews 9, 24. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Since Jesus made the way possible, we can enter into God's presence, the holy God of the universe, with confidence. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, boldness, draw near to the throne of grace. And what a beautiful picture. Think, have you ever thought about a throne of grace? The throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews seven nineteen. a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great uh, priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And the elements at this table, the Lord's Supper, are proof that your God is faithful. Here is where we are strengthened for the journey. This is how we survive grace, not by slugging people in the face, We survive by feasting on Jesus. We survive because Jesus was slugged in the face for us. We survive by seeking God's face, by keeping our eyes on Jesus. And we can come boldly and confidently with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water because of Jesus. We eat and we drink at this table to stay alive. This is how we survive grace. We eat and drink at this table to stay alive. We survive because God dwells with us. And that's strange because you would think you survive and God lives with you and you're able to survive? Yes, because of Jesus. Robert Murray Machane said, for every look at self, Take 10 looks at Christ. Prepare your hearts. Prepare yourself to eat at the Lord's table today. But for each look at you, for each look at your sin, for each look at your failures, take 10 looks at Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Let's turn our hearts to him now. Father, we confess that we are sinners. You know that, we know that. 
We confess that we are caught up with so many different things, God, in this world. And we easily lose sight of you. It's all about you. And we get caught up doing your work. And we forget it's about you. Oh, God, forgive us. We have thought evil thoughts this week. We have spoke evil words. We have done evil things. And we have had evil motives driving all of it. Would you forgive us? We admit that. We come boldly and confidently into your presence, to the throne of grace. We don't do it in our own righteousness. We only do it because we're covered with the righteousness of your son. May we eat and drink today to get strength for the journey. May we keep our eyes on Jesus because he is better than everything. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.